Hi everyone, welcome to the first episode of Season 4 of And What Do You Do? I'm talking to John at Fuse Events. This time, although we do talk quite a bit about John's specific role, well, I would say we spend more time talking about the company itself, particularly its structure and its activities, and perhaps just importantly, its ethos as a social enterprise. What's a social enterprise? How does that relate to running events? Well, that is literally the heart of it. So you're going to have to listen and find out. Okay, well, I'm here with a new guest, but tell me, who are you and what do you do? Uh, my name is John French. I am the Chief Operating Officer, Proprietor and Programme Director of Fuse Events. So we are an events management agency. Um, our kind of, I guess, I was going to say spurious tagline, but that doesn't give us itself in a very good light. But kind of our mission statement is that we exist to deliver socially responsible and environmentally responsible world-changing events, which is, sounds quite grandiose. Um, but we, we're an events management agency, so um, but we are also a social enterprise, which is something we can maybe get into later. But that dictates the way in which our articles of association as a company are set. We essentially have kind of our social mission hardwired into our kind of our reason for being as a, as a limited company. You know, social enterprises come in many flavors and different designations, but we are a limited company. Um, but yeah, we, we run events for people. So we kind of run everything from academic conferences to award ceremonies to, well, particularly this year, lots of online things. So, you know, online seminars, workshops, all that sort of stuff. Um, largely, whatever the kind of our clients want us to do. I'm a kind of frustrated marketer, I suppose, at heart. I used to work in the cultural sector for about 12 years, doing kind of marketing communications uh, before I jumped over into yeah, the world of events, which I've been doing for the kind of last five years. So the sort of social conscious aspect of things, mm. uh, is that because that was really at the heart of, you, you know, when, when the company was set up, that's what you wanted to do? Or is it more that you see that that's where things are going and, it's, um, and you want to be in the forefront of something that's happening now? The kind of the former, really. Um, so I, um, kind of my existence in the events world came about in a slightly happenstancey kind of way, in that I was working for um, a group of museums in the cultural sector, uh, Royal Museums Greenwich, kind of back in the day. Um, and I had kind of felt my career in kind of cultural land had kind of run its course to a certain extent. But I knew a kind of a, a friend of mine. Kind of who I'd done some odd bits of freelance work before, before I had set up a few events, uh, kind of this agency. He's, so Matt, he'd worked in the uh, events industry for, got 30 years or so. Um, and, f- you know, for, for good or ill, the events sector and travel and tourism is a kind of voraciously commercial industry. And there is actually a huge amount of waste in the industry as well. And he'd sort of, having worked in it for a long time, he'd kind of always thought there was a better way of doing business, basically. Um, right. And so, certainly, having done some work with Co-ops UK and some other kind of um, inherently kind of socially minded or ethical companies over the kind of preceding years, Matt decided to set up Fuse and kind of get me on board to create an agency which was kind of did work slightly differently. So we're one of only two agencies in the UK which are social enterprise, and it's more that we didn't really kind of there was a desire to kind of ride a wave or anything. Uh, kind of when we started doing this, it was really we were quite passionate at best about doing business a bit differently. In this, thinking surely there's a better way of doing these things, or trying to through the activities we do as an agency, try and encourage 
not only our clients, but suppliers, hotels, you know, event caterers, whoever it may be, to think about the way they do their work and try and encourage them to, you know, be a bit more sustainable, be a bit more ethical, be sort of give something back through the business that they do, um, rather than just think about the bottom line all the time. So, yeah, it's kind of, um, yeah, I it almost makes me feel a bit guilty or kind of a bit um, fraudulent, it's not the right way to put it, but there's a huge amount of groundswell, which is a good thing at the moment, of people wanting to, or reassessing particularly after everything that's happened this year, um, how they do business a bit differently. And it's something we've been harping on about for about five or six years now, you know, is that there is, you know, the bottom line is not just, you know, the bottom line of your company is not just the bottom line, which it shouldn't be. There should be some tangible social benefits or kind of net social good for the work that you do um, as a business. And if there isn't, then, you know, you obviously your shareholders will be very happy, but surely there's a better way of doing things. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of why the business was set up in the first place. But we are um, a commercial agency at the end of the day. You know, profit's not a bad thing. You know, we live and die by the fact that we make money. Um, it's just what we spend our profits on is, you know, what makes us a bit different and kind of how we run our business. So when a client comes to you, let's say a typical client, if there is such a thing, do they come to you because they've already, they're already on board hmm. with something, with a social conscience, or is it that they, you know, they're going to find you anyway when they're, when they're scouting for, you know, events management, and then they're just intrigued yeah. by what you do? It depends. Some clients really don't give a monkeys. <laughs> they don't kind of, and that's not in, and I don't mind saying that, um, you know, we, one of our clients, funnily enough, is actually Social Enterprise UK, who are the um, kind of professional members body for all social enterprises. We do their annual award ceremony for them. Um, and Peter Polbrook, who's the CEO there, always sort of says that there is, you know, social enterprises, whoever they are, whether they're service providers like ours, or if they make products, you know, they sell things, chocolates or shoes or whatever it may be, you still have to maintain a competitive advantage as a business. It doesn't matter that you're doing something good. If something is buying something you as a service provider, they still need to, that exchange still has to happen in that they're getting something of value, which isn't sure. worth the money they're spending. So we, some of our clients come to us because we do a really good job. You know, we have a reputation. Um, we get a lot of our business through referral. So, you know, somebody, we, we do a bit of work for somebody, they know somebody else, they say, oh, you should look at these guys and work with them. Probably about half of our business comes through word of mouth that way. In, I would probably say more so in the last two years, we've had more people approach us because of what we do. So we've had people kind of search for an agency and they found us and they thought that we offer something a bit different. So I think it's going that way, which is a good thing. You know, that makes us very happy in that that point of difference that we have is becoming more valuable. Um, but we still have to, you know, we still have to run ourselves like a competitive agency like everybody else. The service we provide still has to be top-notch, still has to be as good as everybody else. It's just that we offer a bit more. We have a bit of value add as to, to what we give uh, in terms of the way we operate. And, yeah, so I think it's a mixed bag. Um, sometimes, yeah, what about Sometimes it's because of what we do. Others, it's referral. Um, yeah, it's oh, certainly, well, we hope certainly from everything that's happened this year again that, we know from some of our regular clients and some of their kind of associated businesses that they're starting to reassess their supply chains in terms of who it is that they procure services from. Um, and that's, again, everything from event services like ours through to, you know, where they buy their bin bags to how they, you know, where they procure their mobile phones from. 
um, there's a bit of a reassessment, I think, of, okay, if we're all in this together, particularly with the climate change agenda and kind of um, things of that nature, there's a real, I think, recognition that actually now's the time to probably take stock, reassess and, and sort of make a bit of a step change. Sure. Can I ask you, if such a thing exists, what would be your dream event to, to run? <laughs> um, I'm a kind of, I'm an inherently cerebral kind of person. So for, for me personally, um, a really kind of A-list TEDx style thought-provoking conference of, you know, really inspiring kind of lectures would be my personal dream event. Um, other people in my team would probably be rolling their eyes <laughs> thinking that's okay. the most boring thing in the world. Um, so it's, that, that's my kind of my personal thing. Some, uh, you know, a couple of our other team members really love doing amazing glitzy award ceremonies, you know, black tie, kind of amazing sort of catering, sort of for the glitz and glamour, that sort of thing. Um, one of our team, she's got amazing experience of doing kind of overseas um they're called incentive travel events, uh, which I had no idea what they were when I first started doing this. Essentially, companies, if you you run an insurance firm, you have sales teams, and they have t- they have targets. So if your sales team hits their target for the year, their reward for that team is often something called an incentive travel reward. So they'll get sent to Cancun for a week, you know, right. uh, taken as a reward for selling X million dollars worth of insurance as a reward for their team. Uh, and often agencies like ours are sort of wheeled in to do all the logistics and management, basically run the thing for them. So obviously, you know, we do a fair amount of travel as a team. Um, so there's a few of our team I know who would love love doing events where they get to go to amazing places. Um, right. So, which is, you know, it's a perk of the job. You know, I've certainly the last four years, I've traveled a hell of a lot more um, than I have in previous years. We, you know, we do, we do things all over the world, which is kind of cool. What would you say makes you good at the job? Or maybe even if, if you don't want to be um, too boastful, what makes one good at that sort of job? In the, in, in, what do you need to do? In the royal sense, what makes one good? Um, yeah. you, have, you have to be, um, being a good event manager, you're, it's kind of a weird Venn diagram of very good project management skills. You have to be really organized. You have to be proactive in the way that you deal with clients and suppliers. You always kind of need to be one step ahead of people. You need to be creative. I think it's something I certainly learned in the cultural sector and sort of my marketing comms background is you have to have kind of creative or inventive solutions to things. You know, event, in, in, events, particularly business and corporate and academic events, can be really boring if they're not done very well. They can be really dry and dull and kind of so actually being able to inject a bit of life into them. Um, you need to be a diplomat. You know, you need to have skills to talk to everybody from a CEO of a company down to the cleaner of the venue and kind of be able to kind of create common ground and work with them, create rapport. You have to be the kind of grease in the wheels. And you need to be calm as well. That's something, you know, probably the best members of our team in terms of the most senior members of our team are kind of slightly unflappable. We often find ourselves doesn't matter what the event is. There's always, I guess, it's, you think about the cliche of the kind of swans on a pond or ducks on a pond, whichever animal you prefer, in that it's all serenity on the surface and there is the furious paddling underneath. We kind of, that's the way our lives are when we're running events, is that we are the furious paddling part, but also the serenity on top. You know, we are the entire beast. 
Um, so you need to be, yeah, kind of slightly calm under pressure, I think. I will openly admit that I didn't realise when I first started working in the events industry how much of a kind of Swiss army knife you need to be, particularly if you work in a smaller agency like ours. I mean, that's actually, so there's one caveat I'd give certainly to anybody else who might be listening who works in the events industry. If you work in a small agency, you find this quite a lot. And I guess it goes with any smaller company because there's just less, less of you to go around. There's less of a safety net in terms of, you know, there's some agencies who have thousands of staff and they have literal teams of people who spend their entire day just doing venue finding or just doing registration booking or customer service. Whereas, you know, we have to do all of that ourselves for projects that we're working on, or we certainly have maybe one or two of us working on a project at a time. So being adaptable, I guess, is probably what I'm getting towards. So yeah, a long-winded answer to a short question. <laughs> there you go. Well, no problem. Well, as a follow-up then, are there things that you recognise within yourself that even though there is a, a need to be a jack-of-all-trades, perhaps, have you identified anything where you just think, that's not my strength, that's something I need to hand on to somebody else? Yeah, so I um, I suppose, actually, one thing I didn't mention as a slight step backwards is something else which makes a fantastic events manager is being conscientious. And it's something that I think I learned. It's kind of become hardwired into me working in the public sector for effectively my entire career, barring the odd bit piece before coming to Fuse, is that when you're conscientious for spending somebody else's money, sure. which is effectively what we spend our lives doing, you know, we're working on what, apart from the events we run ourselves, um, which is a whole other story, but we, we're spending other people's money. You know, we are, we are spending our clients' money on venues, uh, production, AV, whatever it may be. Being responsible for their resources and getting the most out of them that we can, and certainly communicating that to clients and having that at the forefront of what we do, I think sets us apart, but it also makes a very good event manager because you're thinking about your client's welfare, essentially. Uh, you're thinking about kind of how you do right by them. And I think certainly working in the public sector kind of made me palpably aware that every penny counts, you know, and certainly not squandering resources. But I think, um, Something in, I recognise myself is that I suppose I'm, I'm dyslexic, so copywriting and kind of um, it's ironic because being the most senior person in the agency, I invariably end up finding myself having to do presentations, write legal documents, contracts, those sort of things. Right. I I kind of I have to get those checked by the people, and I've learned over the years that you can't be precious about people being critical of the things that you write particularly if they're client-facing or if they are you know, of legal importance. And a couple of my team who I regularly get to check over those things, they know that I need that support. Um, it's just something which is a kind of functional thing, which I'm amazing at kind of putting my thoughts down on paper, but that them actually, the grammar of them being as coherent and succinct or written in a way which is as good as they could be is not always the best thing for me to do. Um, I'm much better at kind of talking and doing presentations. I think something I've become... Weirdly, I've become better at working as an event manager owner in the last few years is time management. When I worked in my previous roles over the years, um, I w I've recognized now that my time management was probably not as good as it could have been. And it kind of that got me not in trouble, but it, um, it was a, a minor regret, I suppose, of some of my previous career stages. And that if I had been as good at time management and discipline as I am now, then I probably would have 
got more out of it as well. Because working for a small agency, you cannot waste a minute. Well, time is money. It's a cliche, but it's true. In that, particularly when you're you're working for yourselves, you're responsible for others and your clients. You know, every hour, every meeting, every kind of few emails counts. So, yeah, I think that's something I've improved on, but it's not doesn't come naturally to me. Um, you know, I love, as you can tell, from going off on a tangent, <laughs> having a chat, having a chat. Kind of, you know, I'm kind of um, I'm a little bit of a moth to a flame sometimes in terms of interesting. Things you know, it's why I like cerebral kind of engaging academic stuff. Is that I my brain can easily wander to stuff just because it's interesting, um, and that's not really that great when you've got a big stack of things in your intro to deal with. Do you find it hard to switch off? Because in a in a role mm-hmm. where you are sort of generating, and and as you say, you're also then looking after other employees. Presumably, you could work twenty four hours a day, and you would still not get everything done because yeah the business would just grow and grow so how do you mm. if this is an issue for you how, how do you switch off is it just discipline yeah it's something that i've well i guess a piece of context which arguably makes it harder but is we as an agency we all work from home so we're all remote workers we have been since fuse was set up so um this year hasn't been too much of a shock for us in terms of the remote working thing because what we do anyway. Um, largely born out of the fact that it's just resource drain. We don't need having an office, and we travel so much. It's just easier for us all to work from home. Okay. But the work life, the work life balance thing is one of the reasons why Matt and I were always keen for us to be remote workers. And because you would think if you had your office at home, it would be hard, harder to shut the door and to switch off. But it actually just changes the nature of work, which is what I think a lot of people discovered this year is that actually when you work from home. Well, for starters, I've I am way more efficient, and I've noticed myself that I get way more done in a day. Um, I probably get as much done in four hours than I used to do in a day and a half. I used to work in an office. Wow. Okay. Because there's no distractions. There's nobody dropping at your desk. There's no office banter. There's no well, there is office banter, but it's a different kind. It's digital or on Skype mode. There's no chat about the football games or you know whatever it may be. Um, there's no water cooler conversations in that in that sense. So it's much easier for you to focus on the work that you're doing, or just to crack on and have two hours of uninterrupted productivity, which you can get a huge amount done. But you're also aware, you know, when you're working small agency, there's kind of nowhere to hide. There's no net safety net. You know, you have to. The work has to get done because if it doesn't, there's nobody else who's going to you know the book stops with you basically. So I, you know, in that sense. I have more productivity, therefore I don't feel like I need to be tied to my desk all the time. I'm also not worrying about all those silly little jobs around the house because if I need to go or wash on or go and kind of speak to my wife for 10 minutes or whatever, I can just go and do that and come back and then my head's clear and I can get on with work. So, but that did take me about six months to get used to probably. When I first started working from home, I, would, I was terrible for getting distracted and working long hours and because the desk was just there. It was easy just to work until nine at night. And there is a bit of self-discipline but it's it's work-life balance is one of the most important things we pride ourselves on as an agency. It's one of the reasons why we do this as well as our ethical give back is for our staff, we say, you know, that one of the things we can give to them as a value is that we really pride ourselves in allowing them to have work-life balance um, and turning off at sensible times. You know, we run we work events, we work for event we work events overseas and in different time zones as well. So in you know, there's always calls with Australia or the US at funny times. But because we know that. 
I really don't care if people have a lunch break for two, three hours because they've got stuff to do because they will get the work done. You know, we trust our team and give them responsibility to fulfill the projects they're doing. So I think it's, it can, and some of the junior staff that we've had, um, and we've had to kind of coach them a bit, it can become all-encompassing if you let it. And you can, you have to kind of tell yourself it's okay to switch off. And actually it's a healthy and good thing to close the door in the office and not answer emails at 9pm. Particularly with your know, mobile phones and technology, it's totally easy to do that. But it's it's something we encourage people to try and create is their own work rhythm and work, proper work-life balance. Uh, I mean, I guess your priorities shift, though, in that, I mean, we were saying before we started um, recording, you know, I've got an eight-week-year-old baby in the house who certainly gives you perspective in terms of, I can't work till 8 p.m., <laughs> you know. Um, right. my, my wife needs a break. You know, I need to help out. I need to pull my pull my weight in terms of looking after the little man in the house, um, as well as you know giving pastoral care to the team that I employ. There are other people to whom I have responsibility um, or owe a duty of care to. So, yeah, you have to just remind yourself that it's okay to not work. You know, it's okay to have a home life, <laughs> to have you know to have a family and stuff. That's that's why. You know, again, I'm, I'm firing out all the cliches today, but it's something we say to some new starters sometimes is that, um, you know, we work to live, we don't live to work. You know, that's the part of the reason why we you know, we try and create as much enjoyment through the agency and for staff and, and try and give back what we can is we don't want people to be working 12 hours a day, apart from when you're on site at an event, because that's the reality of what we end up doing. The hard times, the busy times will be there. Um, but don't flog yourself for them because um, if anything, it makes me worry. You know, if somebody's working twelve hours a day, to me that's an alarm bell because it means that there's something not quite right there in terms of they're either not managing their time properly, they're not able to cope with the workload they've got, or there is something else going on which is making them worry to the point where they feel like they need to be working that amount of time. Yeah. So it's it's yeah. I'm not sure if I've answered your question. I've been rambling a lot, but that's. Um, yeah, no, I, th- I mean, certainly there are good points there. Can I just, uh, let me jump onto something different. Um, mm. You mentioned uh, you do your own events as well. Yeah. Tell, tell me a bit about yeah, that. Yeah, so we, that's kind of part of our, um, what makes us a social enterprise. So for those who may be interested, there is a thing in the UK called the Social Value Act, which is a piece of statutory law, which ironically, a lot of local authorities and public sector organisations have never heard of but actually is supposed to bind the way in which they procure services. So the Social Value Act says that any public organisation is supposed to have at least one social enterprise on their procurement. If they're procuring out a job, they're supposed to have at least one social enterprise as part of that list of suppliers. Now, I guarantee that happens in probably one or two percent of instances because most people don't know that it exists. But you can be a social enterprise like ours if you effectively give 50% of your profits to your chosen social mission or good cause, or if you have your legal um, association of your organization as a community interest company. So we're a limited company, LTD. You'll see some companies have CIC after the name, which means they're a community interest company, which means that they, uh, they basically give all of their profit and all their operating capital back into themselves to help run the public service that they are, so like a housing association, for example. 
Um, sure. A lot of those are CICs will have become so. So we, as an agency, we run or own an, a, a separate brand, which is called the World Social Marketing Conference or World Social Marketing. Um, we run um, essentially a, a sort of little roster of non-for-profit academic conferences called the World Social Marketing Conference Series. Um, we probably, in any year, give between 50 to 100% of our profits into kind of bankrolling the operation of those conferences. They happen all around the world. Um, so the last world event was in uh, Edinburgh. The one before that was in Washington, D.C. Before then was in Sydney. Yes, they, they bounce around in Toronto before then. It tracks between five and 600 academics and public sector um, policy people who are concerned with behaviour change. So pertinent this year, because there's a huge amount of social marketing work which is currently being done in preparation of vaccine rollout for COVID. And it's essentially, um, when I try and explain what social marketing is, is to people, it's if you think about a change for life campaign in the UK or a think road safety campaigns or any piece of kind of public service communication which tries to encourage a individual or a community to adopt a positive behaviour of some kind. So whether that's to stop smoking, to eat healthily, to go for a prostate check, to recycle, to whatever it may be. Piece of communication aimed at a behaviour change which creates a net positive social good or something. Um, so we noticed um, years ago that there was a gap, basically, in that there's all this work going on in this area, largely funded by governments around the world, being farmed out to commercial agencies to roll it out, but also lots of local authorities and policy people in local governments doing this work, health authorities, etc. But there was no kind of forum or platform for these people to come together and share knowledge, their create professional networks to discuss and review kind of peer-reviewed academic papers, uh, you know, basically have a full-on conference about all of this professional endeavour. Yeah. So we took it upon ourselves. Um, randomly, we actually ran a small event in this area with somebody who's now the chair of our conference. And discussing with him, he's like, well, why don't you take this on as your kind of social mission to, to further and kind of develop these things? So it's gone from being one event every two years to we now have at least two or three events every year, which attract you know, a large. And they're basically now the industry standard for behavior change and more um, social and behavior change communication around the world. And yeah, we get huge amounts of academic. I think the last World Conference, we had 280 academic papers submitted for peer reviewed. And they're all blind peer reviewed. And then most of the presentations which happen at the events uh, are all, yeah kind of blind, double peer-reviewed case studies about best practice in social marketing and behaviour change. Um, so I guess we could try and, it's a bit of, in air quotes, we create platforms for change. That's what we try and do. You know, we run events. That's our commercial endeavour. Our expertise lies in creating events and these moments. You know, we can create um, in a non-for-profit way through our kind of social mission a big platform which then has a huge amount of net roll-on benefit for those people who attend. That's kind of um, a really good way of us giving something back. As a kind of an example of some of the kind of good stuff that we've managed to achieve through it, um, UNICEF now, I think they're actually, they were supposed to launch it this year, but I think it's been knocked back to next year now. The last, or the world event that we ran in Washington, um, the head of communication for development for UNICEF 
And he was kind of so inspired by some of the other presentations that the network managed to do at the event. A little working group was created at that event and is now culminated in UNICEF standardizing essentially a small training program that all of their senior managers have to go through, which educates them about what effective positive behavior change communication is and how they can basically incorporate that in all UNICEF projects. So it's a kind of strategic buy-in of how you create effective communication programs which create positive behavior change um, that work. You know, the, the marketing component of social marketing means that it's a kind of, it's a management principle, basically. You have to have evidence that it works as a return on investment. You assess what you do. Um, you know, there's kind of academic and management rigor to these things. It's not um, it's not some of the bad press that Nudge, unfortunately, has allowed to creep into the space of behavior change, which is a bad thing that's happened. Um, Nudge is not social marketing. Nudge is kind of one golf in the golf, one club in the golf bag, as it were. And it's also now largely been discredited. I say largely. Um, it's been somewhat discredited into how much impact it has. Um, it's about taking a more holistic, systemic view on how do you create a, an opportunity for people to make positive choices about their behavior. Yeah, so there you go. Long answer again. <laughs> well, uh, we are almost out of time. Let me ask you my last question, my sort of daft question. Mm. Um, so unfortunately, you can't do your job anymore. You haven't been fired. You just can't do it. That's the setup here. But I'm going to offer you three different jobs, and I'd like you to tell me which one of these, if any, uh, you would like, or let's say like the most out of the possibly bad choices, uh, and and why. What is it about you you think would uh, would work well in that field? So I think you can either be a cartographer, you can be a map maker, you can be a well, I'd asked this before um, as well, uh, a personal trainer. And the other thing is you can be a, a window cleaner, but with the caveat that you're one of the guys that uh, does skyscrapers. I don't yeah. know if that's a specific uh, <laughs> a job or qualification. I, I'm sure it is, actually. High-risk high window cleaner. High-risk window cleaning, yeah. Um, I, like, all day, every day, go cartographer. Okay. Um, it's an easy easy choice um, for a number of reasons. Um, I play D&D, <laughs> I'm okay. kind of a perennial nerd, and have a weird fascination and love of creating maps for D&D campaigns and other things. So I would happily well wear my time doing cartography. Also was very lucky enough to work on a couple of um, maps exhibitions when I worked at the British Library. Um, so have a kind of weird interest and kind of passing knowledge of map making and cartography and find it really interesting. And yeah, it's kind of, um, I'm terrible at drawing, but drawing maps convinces you that you're actually quite artistic, so a bit rewarding. I suppose that's why. All right, well, there we go. An ambiguous uh, career as a cartographer. Uh, well, thank you very much for speaking to me today, John. It was really great to hear all about it. Mm. And uh, yeah, thanks very much and enjoy the rest of your day. No, thanks very much, Ed. Nice to speak to you again. All right, there you go. I certainly learned a lot, and I hope you took something away from it too. Thanks, naturally, to John for speaking to me in the first place. And it's only fair to give a shout-out to fuseevents.org. Oh, and in fact, uh, the World Social Marketing website 
uh, that John was talking about, wsmconference.com. I really enjoyed talking to John. Uh, somewhere down the line, I'm, well, I think I'm going to try and quiz him again about things like uh, nudge theory that he was talking about and maybe the logistics sides of events management itself. Perhaps I can talk to one of the other people in the supply chain he was talking about and we'll get an idea of, well, I guess, how everything links together. But that's for the future. Go check out Fuse Events, and if you can, spare a bit of time to like and subscribe and all that sort of stuff. Visit andwhatdoyoudo.co.uk for all the episodes. And finally, because it is the start of a new season, and I do my best to plan ahead at least a little bit, I'd love for you to get in touch at andwhatdoyoudopodcast at gmail.com. I'm always on the lookout for more interviewees. Why not let it be you? Give it some thought, and we'll have uh, another episode for you in a while. Take care. Speak soon.